Everyone needs a pastor. A visit to the pastor's study brings biblically faithful pastoral ministry to you and help from those with proven experience in Christian service. We want you to be part of the program during the 30 minutes ahead. To visit the pastor's study today, text your question at 516-367-0391. Again, that's 516-367-0391. Now welcome to today's Visit to the Pastor's Study with Pastor Bill Shishko. And I am your host, Pastor Bill Shishko. We invite your calls. If you're listening on Saturday, you may use the live call-in number 631-955-5400. Again, for Saturday only, live call-in number 631-955-5400. Or any time in the week, you can text your questions to Pastor Bill 516-367-0391. Well, this month... On a visit to the pastor's study, we're exploring different aspects of the Christian's role and responsibilities in the civil realm, or what we commonly call the state. For this program, and a succeeding one, let's think together about the massive issues related to church and state. Now, let's be clear at the outset, there's a difference between the role of the individual Christian and the role of the church as a corporate body or as corporate bodies in relation to the state. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, for example, is not directed to the state. It's directed to individual Christians. If the state were to turn the other cheek when its borders are violated, well, that would be disaster. But the individual Christian must have that attitude of meekness turning the other cheek in their personal dealings with others. On the other hand, As we saw in a previous program in this Church and State series, the book of Romans, chapter 13, says that the governing authorities, presidents, kings, governors, mayors, judges, and so many others in the civil realm are those who bear the sword. That is, they have the power to punish as they carry out God's wrath on wrongdoers. That's authority given to the state on its various levels. Well, if this were applied by every individual Christian, we'd have war in the streets. So it's essential to keep the role of the individual Christian and the role of the state separate, even as the Word of God does. But what about Christians in their corporate capacity as the church, or as many local churches? What's the role of the church as an organized body, the church as an institution in relation to the state? Some would say that the two are absolutely distinct because of the so-called wall of separation between church and state. There are two kingdoms, one civil and one earthly, the other spiritual, the other heavenly, and never the twain shall meet. But if the governing authorities are God's servants for our good, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13, and if good is defined by God, who is the very fountainhead of what's good, well, shouldn't the church address the state as part of its commission to declare the whole counsel of God to all, including those in authority over us? Others would say that because God gave civil laws to the land of Israel and because these laws still contain principles that reflect the goodness of God, it's important that the church and individual Christians seek to see these laws and other principles for government declared to those in authority over us and also seek to see these laws and principles legislated and enforced for the good of the nation. 
But what then of the mandate to the church to make disciples of Christ, of men, women, boys, and girls of all nations? Won't the political swallow up the spiritual, that is the ministry of the Spirit, to carry out in the world through the church? Well, see, I, I, I think you see the challenge here. What's the right relationship of church and state? To help us work through this very technical but most important issue, I have as my guest today and two weeks from now, Dr. Alan Strange. Dr. Strange was planning to be a lawyer, but the Lord had other plans. Alan was called to the ministry, and after his training at Westminster Theological Seminary, Philadelphia, he was ordained to the gospel ministry and served for nine years as pastor of the Orthodox Presbyterian Congregation in Glassboro, New Jersey. In 1990, he began teaching at Mid-America Reformed Seminary in Dyer, Indiana, where he currently serves as theological librarian, registrar, and professor of church history. He earned his doctorate from the University of Wales in 2014. His doctoral research focused on the issue of the relation of church and state from an historical perspective. His doctoral dissertation has been published under the title The Doctrine of of the spirituality of the church in the ecclesiology of Charles Hodge. Now, that book would be heavy sledding for most people, but, but the material in that book is so full of insights into the church-state issue that I wanted to give Dr. Strange the opportunity to give the cream of those insights to you on a couple of visits to the pastor's study, and we're going to start that on today's program. If you're listening on Saturday, you can call in with your questions. That live call in number 631-955-5400. Or you can text your questions any time in the week. Put that under Pastor Bill. Here's the number, 516-367-0391. Dr. Alan Strange, welcome again to a visit to the pastor's study. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be with you once again, and always to talk to you and your listeners. We've got a lot to do. Unpack for us, Dr. Strange, what you mean by the spirituality of the church. Now, I may be, <laughs> I'm probably, <laughs> as I usually do, open a can of worms, um, uh, but, but is there such a thing as an unspiritual church? Well, let me say a couple of things uh, that might help to begin with that it, it sort of doesn't mean. Well, I, I, I don't mean, or we don't mean when we say the spirituality of the Church, what people say on, on talk shows when they go on and say, well, I'm religious. I'm not religious, but I'm a spiritual person. We don't mean that, nor do we mean just narrowly what sometimes call Christian spirituality, which is prayer, Bible study, but as you've already indicated in this conversation, the spirituality of the Church highlights that the Church as a corporate body over against the state or the family, for example, the Church is an organization constituted particularly by the Holy Spirit in which he uses the means of grace to gather and to build the Church. So the Church is a spiritual institution over against the state, which is a political one, or the family, which is a biological one. And we often say then that the power of the Church is ministerial. It's to preach God's Word, to declare God's will. It's not the power of the sword. You were talking about that recently. 
in terms of the state, right? right? It's not the power of the rod that pertains to the to the family. It's the power of the keys, and that means to admit or to keep out of the church. And so when we talk about the spirituality of the church, it's really recognizing that the church is a spiritual institution over against other sorts of institutions, and that its calling, its task, its job as a corporate body is, first of all, to carry out the Great Commission, to right. preach the gospel in all nations to all people. And spirituality, its if I could put it this way, it's capital S. It's, it's the way the Holy Spirit has laid right. out in the Scriptures what the Church as a body is to do, correct? That's right. Okay, all right. That's exactly right. All right. Well, tell, you use the term, Dr. Strange, means of grace. Uh, you and I know what we're talking about, but, <laughs> but not all of our listeners necessarily do. Explain what, what you mean by that. Well, this is very important, too, for the, the whole notion of where the idea comes from, because Means of grace is a very Protestant and reformational way of speaking about what happens when the Word is preached, when the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are observed, as we engage in prayer. Because, you see, the Protestants, particularly Calvin and that wing of the Reformation, John Calvin and the Reformed and the Presbyterians, all those that come from that, really develop the doctrine of the work of the Holy Spirit in a way that it hadn't been developed before. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the earlier church, say go to the medieval church, Thomas Aquinas is the most prominent theologian in the West of the church. And when he's talking about theology, he goes from the doctrine of Christ right to the doctrine of the sacraments. He does not go to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, But Calvin said, you have to go to the Holy Spirit and understand the work of the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit who takes the means of grace, who takes the Word, who takes the the sacraments, who takes our prayer. These things don't don't automatically, if you will, uh, get us the grace of God that we need. These are, are tools, you might say, whereby the Holy Spirit works to give us God's grace. But this was part of the problem. The Roman Catholic Church didn't call them means of grace, because they saw them as kinds of ends in themselves. But their means, and what that means is, in all the means, in the Word, in the sacraments, in prayer, we're to be led to Christ. All these means bring us to Christ. In fact, Calvin said, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He brings us to Christ and Christ to us. And that had not been understood clearly. And he brings it by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses that. Yeah, Yeah, one of the chapters in the book that for very many reasons I was quite intrigued with, uh, the theology of Charles Hodge, who was a 19th century theologian, pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, to ecclesiology. When I'd said with you, Dr. Strange, in our emails, I would love some face-to-face talks. And that's, that's what I was getting at. That's not for this program, uh, but, but for some, from some other time. Before our break, maybe to bring this down to the spirituality, to bring, to bring it down to earth for a moment, can you give us a way or two that this played out in American history? Yeah, well, let me just say, it had been used well, you might say, the, the, just before American history. The Scots, those in Scotland, 
were very concerned that the king of England was trying to say, I'm the head of the church. <laughs> and they taught, no, no, the church enjoys spiritual independency. So that's kind of the way that first got put was among the Scots in the 16th and 17th centuries. Then what happened in America was, of course, you know, our Constitution said there's a kind, some kind of separation of church and state, which is to say we don't have a national established church. But what happened was, is that that got taken particularly by some Southern theologians to say the Church needs to mind its spiritual business, and when it comes to slavery, it needs to keep its mouth shut. And so this was a very unfortunate development, a very sad development, I might say. The way this played out in American history, Bill, is one of the saddest things in the history of the whole Church. What you see is that though in the ancient church, Christianity contributed to the end of that old Roman slave system, and that'd be another great subject for another time, one of the great tragedies of modern history is that there were Christians who participated not only in bringing African chattel slavery into being, but who, some of whom justified it, and some justified it by saying, well, if, if the state, if business wants to do this, if they want to have this slave system, there's nothing that we have to say about it, because the spirituality of the Church keeps us from saying anything about it. Charles Hodge, the fellow I wrote on, did not agree with that. This is fascinating. We're going to forego, we love hearing the voice of the visit to the pastor's study. We're going to forego that this week. This is very important. Um, my guest today is, is Dr. Alan Strange, professor of church history at Mid-America Reformed Seminary in Dyer, Indiana. You can text your questions, and I'm sure you'll have them any time in the week, 516-367-0391, or you can email me your questions, all one word now, visit Pastor Bill at gmail.com, visit pastorbill at gmail.com. We're dealing with church and state, part one of our proposed two-part series. Uh, Dr. Strange, let's develop that a bit. I, particularly with my black brothers and sisters that I've spoken with, this is, of course, a very sensitive topic, and I have said that one of the things that, fully realizing there are cultural sins, one of the things I cannot grasp is how in the South, where there was such a high view of the Bible, there was a, a condoning of really treating, not only man, man stealing, well, which is specifically condemned in the Scriptures, and treating other human beings made in the image of God as, as less than that. Could you, could you comment on that a bit? Yeah, Bill, I mean, this, this is something worth weeping about, and I have wept quite a bit about it as, as I've I have. done as study I have. Yeah. in this area. And you just highlighted 1 Timothy 1.10, which among the sins that it lists, the Apostle Paul forbids the stealing of men, and that's what African slavery certainly involved. I think what, what happened basically, Bill, was that in a certain sense, the spirituality of the Church was used by those who were supporters of slavery to all that much the more prop it up. They were happy to have the Church not challenge it. Now let me say this, those same theologians in the South and elsewhere who would argue the spirituality of the Church would enter in the pulpit and would preach slaves 
submit yourselves to your masters. I've read a number of those sermons. And so it isn't really even true that they weren't addressing the subject. They weren't challenging it. They weren't confronting it on the other side and questioning the legitimacy. But you see, they just assumed they would read the Bible, and they said, well, the Bible defends, or it certainly permits, slavery. But there were people even at the time, the covenanters, for example, our covenanting brethren. Now, now I don't know if your listeners are familiar you, you with them. You might explain that. Yeah, explain that. They're the, refo- yeah. they're the Reformed Presbyterians. When we, we use that word, Reformed Presbyterian, that's what they tend to be called in this country. And they believe in exclusive psalm singing and no use of instruments. They have these particular distinctives. But they all along always forbade chattel slavery. They would not permit it. I talk about that, too, in the book. And there was a very famous sermon preached in 1802 by Alexander MacLeod called Negro Slavery Unjustifiable. And what he talked about was, he makes very clear, it's very well done, that the slavery that you find in the Bible is not, was not, what was being practiced in 19th century America in terms of African chattel slavery. It wasn't racially based, but the, it, it had to do with Israel coming in and settled the land. It had redemptive historical kinds of connotations, meaning it was unique to Israel at the time. He does a very good treatment of that. And the point is, is he just really takes away the arguments that people had as they would read the Bible and say, well, the Bible seems to be all for slavery. There were other people reading it and being clearer about it and saying, no, it is not describing what we have had in going to Africa and bringing those people forcibly here. And so... Well, not to mention um, the fact that there was a jubilee year for the release of the slaves. Well, it was always, Bill, it was always done very partially. In other words, the reading was partial. They would go to they wouldn't read about the Sabbath years or the gleaning laws or the Jubilee years. In other words, things that in a whole host of ways modified all of this and showed mercy and so forth. And it was, uh, it was a very, very difficult thing. Hodge said, no, you may not, by adducing or saying spirituality of the Church, you may not muzzle the prophetic voice of the church. Now he came to say, yes, spirituality has a proper application when it comes to the question of that which would divide men of the same faith who believe the same Bible, who confess the the same thing, that would divide them over questions that the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us what to do in terms of society. Should terms be limited for Congress? Should What should the tax rate be? You know, all these kinds of things. He says, we don't have a thus saith the Lord for these. But it's always been the case that the Reformed have believed in what Calvin called the second use of the law. He speaks about three uses of the law. And the second use is what's called the civil use of the law. That is, the moral law of God is to guide civil society in its basic constitution. And I think you've talked about how that the minister, the magistrate, the judge, uh, is in a sense uh, of the Lord to carry out wrath against evildoers. Uh, And so 
but it's I think one way you can see it in the scripture. You say, is there some way you could distinguish? I think the book of Philemon is very helpful to make this distinction. Because note just carefully, if you would, what what does Paul do in Philemon? Paul tells a fellow whose slave has become a Christian, he basically urges him, and he makes a bunch of arguments, why he should free his fellow Christian. But he doesn't command him to do that. So here's, here's what I want to say. Freeing slaves, even in that Roman context, is a result or a consequence of the gospel. But if Paul had said, you must free your slave, that would have then radicalized and politicized the gospel, and the fact that Jesus Christ is Savior and that message going out to all the world could have been marginalized. Because if Paul, as an apostle, had said, you must right now immediately manumit your Roman slave, which is not the same, that, that, that's not the same as American chattel slavery, I repeat that. Right. But if he had even said that, he rather urged him to, and we're pretty sure Philemon would have done so. But you see, that becomes a consequence of the gospel. And I think that's a good way you see the spirituality of the church, because, um, you know, how do we understand it today? Um, could, I, could I just say something well, from you know, the last paragraph of my book? <laughs> I'll, tell you, Sorry. I'll tell you what, Dr. Strange. This, this is, we've had to move to a shorter program, and this is what happens when you have an interview like this. Here's, here's what we're going to do. Just let me add this little comment. As you know, Philemon was to receive Onesimus as a brother and more than a brother. Right. And you don't keep your brother as a slave. All right. We, That's right. Two weeks from today, we're going to continue this. And Dr. Strange and I had, had a plan for that. But here's what we're going to do, Dr. Strange. I'll give you two weeks to chew on this, okay? Um, how, don't start it now because I've got to get the counsel from the pastor's study. But how, how do we avoid the spirituality of the church being misused today so that the church becomes irrelevant in dealing with church-state issues. You want to deal with that in two weeks? Sounds good. Great. Thanks so much, Dr. Strange. Appreciate your time with us. Dr. Alan Strange, Mid-America Reformed Seminary, his book, The Doctrine of the Spirituality of of the Church in the Ecclesiology of Charles Hodge, a 19th century theologian. Counsel from the pastor's study, I cannot overstate the fact that nothing is truly neutral in life. My guest on the previous program, a Christian on the judge's bench, emphasized that if you go upstream of any political issue, you'll always reach a sin issue. Unfettered capitalism will bring an open door for personal greed, corruption, and economic tyranny. Concern for government to help the poor can easily lead to government corruption, class warfare, a redistribution of wealth that is in fact legalized stealing. The legitimate concern for human rights can lead to the removal of barriers against unrestrained wickedness. And the legitimate concern for government to preserve order can lead to governmental tyranny. Yet capitalism, the freedom to use one's wealth to make profit lawfully and through human action, genuinely helpful assistance to the poor, concern for human rights, and concern for civil order are all legitimate and righteous matters. So how do you preserve what's right, but also at least hinder what's wrong? Frankly, that doesn't begin with government, with the state, and it doesn't even begin with the church. It begins with you. To whom or to what do you look as your Lord, as your master, as your commander-in-chief? You know, if it's yourself, 
You're a law unto yourself, and you're dangerous to yourself and to others. If it's Jesus Christ, as he's freely offered to you in the gospel, you will be truly free, and at the same time, you'll want to bring every thought, word, and action captive to the truth as it is and as it is modeled in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, if you're looking to Jesus Christ as your Lord, you'll want to be part of a local church that's faithful to him and to his word. But the solution to our social ills doesn't begin with church or state. It begins with you. Now, skip the massive issues of church-state relations just for a moment. Where's your most basic allegiance? Is it to Jesus Christ the King in and by the power of the Holy Spirit? See, that's where the spirituality of the church has its source. Now, if the church in our day would be a truly spiritual, capital S, church, that is, let the Holy Spirit, spirituality, let that spirituality begin with me and let it begin with you. My thanks to Mid-America Seminary Church History Professor Dr. Alan Strange for being my guest on today's A Visit to the Pastor's Study, and thank you for listening. It's a privilege to be a pastor to you through the medium of radio. Remember, Sunday is the Lord's Day. Be sure to set apart a time to worship the Lord in a church that's faithful to the Word of God. And remember, everyone needs a pastor. You've been listening to this week's A Visit to the Pastor's Study, a ministry of Reformation Metro New York Incorporated in the Orthodox Presbyterian Churches of Metropolitan New York and Connecticut. For more information on the program, check out our website at www.visitthepastorsstudy.org. That's www.visitthepastorsstudy.org. Listen in next week for another Visit to the Pastor's Study. Remember, everyone needs a pastor.